millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport the podcast that keeps a tub of brill cream and a comb in its jersey pocket to be sure of looking presentable on the podium of Peloton's past. Brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. In our previous episode, we revisited Floyd Landis's solo win to Morzine to resurrect his bid for yellow at the 2006 Tour de France. A ride fueled by anger, desperation, and one or two other things. It really was a performance that was too good to be true. In the first episode of this season's Vuelta España trilogy, we're riding the 1962 race with a young Rudy Altig as he ended the hopes of Jacques Anquetil, his teammate and the dominant force in cycling, of, that year at least, becoming the first rider to win all three Grand Tours. Instead, Altig became the first rider from Germany to win a three-week race. Rudy Altig had a party trick. The big German with chiselled features and blonde hair was an early practitioner of yoga, which he used to help him relax and steady his breathing at the track centres where he was so dominant in the late 1950s and 60s. Occasionally, he would hold himself upside down on his powerful arms and do a headstand, staying there until he felt ready to come down. Once, in the French city of La Rochelle, he even walked out of a restaurant on his hands. If Altig was undeniably one of the most colourful characters of his generation, reflected by the rainbow bands he eventually wore around his chest, he also had the cycling skills to match his daftness off the bike. After all, there are not many riders who win their maiden grand tour by defying a leader who was the world's greatest cyclist at the time. By the beginning of 1962, Jacques Anquetil had won the Tour de France and Paris-Nice twice, the Giro d'Italia and all of the world's major time trials multiple times. Having notched his first tour in 1957 and his first Giro in 1960, the Frenchman, according to Miroir du Cyclisme magazine at the start of the season, envisions attacking the Tour of Spain rather than the Giro d'Italia because he wants to be the first rider in history to add his name to the Palmares of all three Grand Tours. Franco ruled over a country that was still bitterly divided, but La Vuelta was gaining in stature 
and attracting a more international crowd. Having the great Oncatil on the start list in Spain, the man dubbed Monsieur Chrono for his supreme time-trialling ability was a massive coup. On a course without major climbs and with a whopping 82-kilometre individual time trial on the third to last day, the 28-year-old Oncatil looked to be a shoo-in for yellow. Not only was he blessed with all the requisite physical attributes to succeed, the Frenchman was also surrounded by the strongest team in the race. The Saint-Raphael-Haylet team boasted the 1958 Vuelta winner Jean Stablinski of France, the versatile Belgian Marcel Janssens, the Irish sprinter Shay Elliott and Altig, the German track star tipped for great things on the road. When Saint-Raphael romped to victory in Benidorm in the team time trial on stage 5, it looked very much like all was set fair for Oncatil to make history. But instead, less than a fortnight later, the proud Frenchman would leave with his tail between his legs after his young teammate Altig emerged from the shadows to write his name into the record books for Germany instead. And that would set the wheels in motion for a rivalry that endured for the rest of their careers. So, who was Rudy Altig? Oncatil arrived in Spain for the missing piece of his Grand Tour puzzle with the 25-year-old Altig as a late addition to his classy San Rafael squad. Team director Rafael Giminiani was undecided on whether Altig was ready to ride a Grand Tour, and he wanted the track and six-day specialist to prove himself worthy of a place in July's Tour de France. Many nations have stereotypes, and Altig fitted his well, the perfect image of the chunky German with fair hair and a square head, Les Woodland writes in a piece that called the rider the clown prince of cycling on Cycling News. Nicknamed the Mannheim Steamroller, Altig had made a name for himself in his city's biggest attraction, its velodrome. While Oncatil was riding to glory in his debut tour in 1957, Altig was dominating the German amateur scene after becoming the junior road race champion in 1953. Teaming up with his brother Willy, Altig specialised in the Madison and other two-man races, becoming the best in the country. In 1956, at a track meeting held on Good Friday at Herne Hill in London, the brothers, in the words of the organiser Jim Wallace, slaughtered a top-class field of international riders with all our best home lads. What a pair they made. Between 1957 and 1959, Altig won the German amateur sprint, pursuit, team pursuit and Madison titles, topped off with the world amateur 4km pursuit title in 1959. After turning pro in 1960 with Rafa Jetan Dunlop, Altig enjoyed stage-winning success in the Deutschland Tour and Paris-Nice, but still focused primarily on the track. He won back-to-back -back world pursuit titles, German national titles in the pursuit and Madison, and broke several world track records. He gave his bikes as hard a time as he gave his adversaries, said the revered French cycling author and screenwriter Olivier Desat. Throughout his road career, Altig would continue riding the winter boards, notching up 22 six-day wins, 15 second places, 
and 11 third-place finishes from just 79 starts. His illustrious Palmares would also include European Omnium and Madison titles. With his extrovert personality and film star looks, Altig helped bring about a golden period for the German sixes. No man ever settled down better or quicker to a pro career than the able Altig. Jim Wallace again, writing in Sporting Cyclist. In the hurly-burly world of indoor track racing, Rudy never seemed a novice. Settling down at once, tearing strips off established stars, he soon started to fill indoor tracks which had long forgotten the welcome sight of a house-full sign. He brought back the biggest winter racing boom to Germany for many years, reminiscent of the balmy pre-war days. With seven tracks at home, more than in the rest of Europe, Alte had a busy time and was soon in the big money. Renowned for his trademark-like touch, Alte had a wicked sense of humour and a keen sense of fun. He was a practical joker and crowd-pleaser who became very popular with his fellow riders, journalists and fans, while photographers enjoyed capturing for posterity his various antics, which included donning a range of hats during races. His burgeoning success on the road was helping to draw more crowds to six-day racing while catching the eye of Giminiani, who snapped up Altic for his San Rafael team in 1962 and then kept him sweet by bringing in his older brother one year later. While not as successful as Rudy, Willie was a pro for eight years, during which his only victory was a stage in the 1964 Giro. It was Giminiani who pushed Altig Jr. towards broadening his horizons, convincing him of his potential on the road by appealing to his wallet. Rudy was very fast and he was so strong, but he was doubtful about doing bigger road races until I told him that if he won some of them, his contract fee for the six days would double. And that, as Giminiani once said, did the trick. It certainly did. Altig's conversion to the road was nothing short of sensational. After home rider Antonio Barutia won the opening stage to and from Barcelona to don the first yellow jersey of the race, San Rafael stepped up to dominate the 17th edition of La Vuelta. On stage two, no fewer than six riders from the 10-man San Rafael squad went on the attack, with Onkatil, Altig, Stablinski and Elliot in the break alongside France's Jean-Claude Annart and Dutchman Mikkel Stolker. Altig sprinted to victory and the yellow jersey in Tortosa, with the chase group 10 minutes back and the peloton almost a quarter of an hour in arrears. The French team set such a high pace in the break that their own rider, Marcel Kie, finished outside the time limit and was sent packing. It became clear from the outset that Giminiani's tactic was for his team to control the race from start to finish, sending riders into all the moves, mopping up the intermediate sprints and prizes and winning stages until, as planned, Maitre Jacques turned the screw in the final time trial to secure the overall win. When Altig relinquished the yellow jersey after two days, it was only because his Irish teammate Elliot took the line in Benidorm, winning a two-up sprint against the Spaniard Manuel Martín. The result led to Martín's manager on the cast team to declare that San Rafael are the Real Madrid of cycling.
few could argue. Victory in the team time trial the next day underlined San Rafael's supremacy, with Altig moving back into yellow after his second stage win on day seven at Almeria. Despite Elliot and Altig trading the yellow jersey like a game of musical chairs, Onkatil was still the designated leader of a team that exerted a vice-like grip over the race, a team that would end up winning 11 of the race's 17 stages. But Altig's stage 7 win from a breakaway meant the German debutant extended his lead to almost five minutes over his French team leader, as some cracks were beginning to appear in Onkatil's otherwise smooth exterior. The internal rivalry at Saint Raphael came to a head on stage 9 between Malaga and Cordoba. After Onkatil got into the breakaway with teammate Elliot, Altig found himself in a chase group almost one and a half minutes behind. Onkatil furiously drove the pace in the breakaway, but Altig, with the help of his Belgian teammate Janssens and some other Belgian riders from the Wiels Groener Liu team, managed to bridge over before the finish. Elliot took fourth place that day to edge back ahead of Altig in the overall standings, but the atmosphere in the San Rafael Hotel was so strained that Altig and Onkatil could no longer dine at the same table. Despite the simmering tension, morale was still sky high over the next five days, with Stablinski and Dutchman Albertus Geldermans picking up wins before Frenchman Jean Gracic completed a brace ahead of the all-important Stage 15 time trial. Onkatil's plan to trounce the opposition in the marathon race against the clock between Bayonne and San Sebastian was a wholesale success, save for one minor detail. While he did indeed put minutes into all his rivals, he hadn't banked on one of his domestiques matching him pedal stroke for pedal stroke over the 82-kilometre course. The long route featured the second category climb of the Alto de Bardin, and Onkatil, the world's leading TT specialist, whom one reporter once said made riding one kilometre seem like 900 metres, was confident he would end the day in the Mayo Amarillo. After all, Elliot, the yellow incumbent, was no expert and would surely concede to the natural order of things. But before that day's race began, Altig, still second on GC, nine seconds short of being five minutes ahead of his French teammate, was asked whether Onkatil would win the stage. The German answered emphatically, I will be the winner. Altig had a right to be confident. He was the world pursuit champion whose power should never have been so brazenly underestimated by Onkatil and Giminiani. But that world title was on the boards and over six-minute bursts, This challenge was a two-hour-plus race of truth over undulating roads, an entirely different prospect. The powerful German, however, took it all in his stride. When Onkatil crossed the line in San Sebastian, he set the provisional best time of two hours, 17 minutes and eight seconds, only for Altig to come home one second faster after a quite phenomenal effort. With his third stage win of his breakthrough race, the German soared back into the yellow jersey with Onkatil, his nearest challenger, now 4 minutes and 52 seconds in arrears, and Spain's Jose Perez Francis in third at 7 minutes and 14 seconds. With two hilly stages remaining, 
Spanish fans had renewed hope that Perez Francis could take advantage of the rift within the San Rafael team. But Altig protected his lead in the penultimate stage to Vitoria, leading home the peloton after teammate Gracic had picked up his third win in four days from a three-man break. The big news, however, was Onkatil coming home way down in the peloton, all but relinquishing his quest to become the first man to win all three Grand Tours. Rumours began to spread like wildfire, and the next morning, before the final stage, it was confirmed. The Frenchman was allegedly suffering from appendicitis or a gastric infection. The French press would write, somewhat hyperbolically, if not misleadingly, that Onkatil est mort. Onkatil is dead, as the humiliated double tour champion abandoned the race. More bitter than a Citron Presse, Onkatil, on leaving the race, added his two song teams. Everyone knows what happened. If I had my way, the entire team would be withdrawing along with me and leaving Altig on his own. Five climbs, including the famous Solube, now stood between the German and a famous victory on the final stage to Bilbao. And while he was no specialist climber, Altig was able to match all the accelerations from Perez Francis to secure a maiden Grand Tour victory at his first attempt. The Spaniard came a distant second, while Elliot took the final spot on the podium, with another three San Rafael riders making the final top ten. Considered too young and inexperienced to ride the tour by his team director Giminiani, Altig had instead come to the Vuelta and seen off the challenge from within, denying his own leader a victory that everyone thought was Onkatil's for the taking. And to do this, Altig became one of the few riders to top the great Onkatil in a time trial. In beating the Frenchman, Altig had ridden his first three-week stage race very much à la Onkatil by grinding down his opposition in a display of brute force that was unspectacular but deadly clinical. So, what happened next? Altig's unexpected Vuelta victory at Onkatil's expense had created deep divisions within the San Rafael team, but, by the same token, had shown that the German was simply too strong and too great a talent to leave out of the Frenchman's squad for the defence of his tour title. So, off Altig went six weeks later to the Tour de France, where he promptly won the opening stage between Nancy and Spa to don the race's first yellow jersey. This only antagonised Onkatil further. Winning the stage had denied the Frenchman's GC rival Rick Van Looy a minute's time bonus, but it had also put needless pressure on Onkatil and his team, who were forced to defend the Maillot Jean. Altig conceded the jersey at the earliest possible opportunity, only to move back to the top of the GC standings after winning stage three, from Brussels to Amiens. A third stage win came in the final week in Antibes, all but securing the German sprinter the green jersey. Thankfully for Gimignani, normal service had resumed in the time trials. Onkatil won the first 43-kilometre effort to La Rochelle 
and then doubled up with victory in the decisive 68km TT to Lyon, moving into the yellow jersey with just two stages remaining. This time, Anquetil's measured waiting game paid off. The Frenchman's third tour triumph came with a gap of five minutes over the Belgian Joseph Plancart, with Altig well over an hour back in 31st place. Success in his first two major stage races translated into lucrative contracts on the Criterium circuit for Altig, who matched his teammate Anquetil's four crit wins over a busy late summer travelling around the country and putting on a show. After a return to the track and another victory in the first six-day race of the winter, Altig was in excellent condition for his last major event of the season, the now-defunct Trofeo Baraki, the formidable two-up team time trial for which his partner was none other than Monsieur Anquetil. The winners of the Trofeo Baraki read like a who's who of cycling superstars, with the Italian champions Fausto Coppi, Fiorenzo Magni and Ercole Baldini all triumphing on numerous occasions. For the 1962 edition, Baldini, the 1956 Olympic champion who had recently beaten Onkatil's World Hour record, was paired with his friend and trade teammate Arnaldo Pambianco, who had taken the previous year's Giro title ahead of Onkatil. Plenty of motivation then for Monsieur Crono, who was paired with his powerhouse teammate Altig, giving the Frenchman a chance to show the German who was boss after his narrow but ignominious TT loss in the Vuelta six months earlier. Onkatil, however, was not a huge fan of the Trofeo Baraki because, for him, time trials were a discipline best enjoyed, if that's the word, alone. Altig, on the other hand, was a monster in a two-man effort like this, capable of using his track pedigree and all those hours riding the Madison with his brother to devastating effect just as he did while playing the metronome in many a breakaway on the road. In his Cycling Legends series, Chris Sidwells provides some nice context to an event that Altig would later describe as his greatest day on a bike, but one which left his partner on a hospital bed after a rare moment of chronic weakness. It rained all through the week before the race, when Onkatil was a guest of the organiser Mino Baraki, and he decided to put his feet up and enjoy his Italian host's hospitality. He didn't train at all, but Altig did. He found a long tunnel near where he was staying and rode up and down it as many times as he needed to keep his race legs in trim. What happened during the 111km race over gently rolling terrain between Bergamo and Milan amounted to Onkatil's worst day on a bike. As Sidwell summarises, Altig and Onkatil won, but the German nearly killed the Frenchman. He was never more uncomfortable in the Baraki Trophy, or maybe in any other race in his life, than he was when winning it in 1962. For the first two hours, the duo worked together like clockwork, averaging more than 46 kilometres per hour. As they headed into the outskirts of Milan, they held a lead of one minute over the Baldini-Pambianco duo, but, curiously, Onkatil suddenly stopped doing his turns and was suffering in silence in his partner's slipstream. 
Once his partner lost the wheel and let a gap of a few lengths open up, Altig first started remonstrating with him before changing tact and trying to encourage him. He shouted at him, showed him his fist, even pushed him along. It was the ultimate humiliation for the man considered to be the world's best cyclist at the time. Jacques wasn't happy and it didn't please him, Altig later said. But I wanted us to win. So I grabbed his saddle, I grabbed him by the shorts, and hup! The veteran French sports writer René de la Tour was following in a press car. When Oncatil lost contact, Altig had to ease the pace, wait for his partner to go by, push him powerfully in the back, sprint to the front again after losing 10 yards in the process, and again settle down to do a 30 mile per hour stint at the front. De La Tour said it was the most extraordinary athletic feat he had witnessed in 35 years of covering bike races. Oncatil's Jour Sans was called as they raced through a tunnel into the Vigorelli Velodrome, where both he and Baldini had set their hour world records. Dazed, debilitated and ashen-faced, Oncatil failed to make the sharp turn exiting the tunnel, crashed into a pole and landed in a crumpled heap with a badly bruised arm and blood flowing from a wound on his face. Luckily for the pair, the timekeepers were stationed at the entrance to the velodrome and their time was enough to win the event by nine seconds. As Altig took a lap of honour, Oncatil was being loaded into an ambulance and taken to hospital. If Oncatil already saw Altig as a threat after the Vuelta, then his antics during the Trofeo Baraki confirmed to the Frenchman that his German teammate was not to be trusted. Altig, Oncatil concluded, was clearly trying to undermine him and usurp him as team leader at San Rafael. But the feeling of disillusionment went both ways. Geminiani preached an all-for-one, one-for-all policy at his team, but Oncatil, while very keen to ensure the first half of the motto was adhered to by his minions, was less willing to fulfil his side of the bargain. A case in point came in 1963 at Paris-Nice, where Altig led with two stages remaining. Renowned for his class and temperament, the German made sure he lost enough time in the penultimate stage in Corsica to enable his teammate to leapfrog above him to the top of the podium one day later on the French Riviera. As a reward for his selfless teamwork in sacrificing his best chance of an overall Paris-Nice victory, Altig expected that Oncatil would return the favour a few days later in Milan-San Remo. This was not to be. As Altig recalls in Geminiani's book, Le Année Oncatil, we had an agreement that I would help him in stage races and he would help me in the classics, but it was difficult. I could hardly wait for him at the side of the road. I did it once in Paris-Nice, then three days later he was supposed to help me in Milan-San Remo. But he only did 50 kilometres before stopping and getting into the car with his wife Janine, who was parked at the side of the road. I said to myself, I can't tolerate a teammate like that. Geminiani places the incident not in La Primavera, which neither rider raced in 1963, but in Paris-Roubaix, which they both raced in 1961, 
albeit three weeks after Onkatil's second Paris-Nice victory, when teammate Altig finished 33rd. The German was probably conflating a number of separate incidents. It was 1964 when he rode Milan-San Remo, three days after Paris-Nice, but it was the Dutchman Jan Janssen who won that edition of the Race to the Sun, while Onkatil did not appear to ride. Either way, it was clear to all that Onkatil and Altig's working relationship was on the slide, even if they managed, astonishingly, to remain good friends off the bike. In Paul Howard's biography of Onkatil, Sex, Lies and Handlebar Tape, Altig tells the author, In races, he was too selfish, so we decided not to mix racing and friendship. What I can say about Jacques is that since his death, he is someone I have missed. Once his contract was up at the end of 1964, Altig inevitably left San Rafael. He went out on a high, winning the Tour of Flanders by four minutes with a 60-kilometre lone break before supporting Onkatil to a record fifth Tour win. He might have been riding for a different team to the Frenchman, but some things never change. At the 1965 edition of Paris-Nice, Onkatil won. Altig, meanwhile, was runner-up with three stage wins. A fractured hip then required complicated surgery and a long period of rehabilitation, ruling Altig out of the tour that year. But he bounced back to animate the World Championships in San Sebastián, where he was pipped by his co-escapee and close friend, Tom Simpson. Disappointment did not last too long. A year later, Altig won the Worlds on home roads at the Nürburgring motor racing circuit. Second place, Onkatil, of course. For all his domination in stage races, donning the rainbow stripes was always something that eluded the Frenchman. Onkatil had, however, returned to the Vuelta in 1963 to complete the final piece of his Grand Tour puzzle, winning the opening time trial to wear yellow from stage 1B all the way to the finish. Over the course of a long career, Altig wore the tour's yellow jersey for 18 days and picked up 18 stage wins across all three Grand Tours. He added Milan San Remo to his Palmares in 1968 and remained a constant fixture in velodromes all over Europe. So much so that he never rode the Giro di Lombardia because it clashed with the start of the winter track season. He was, says Woodland, not only Germany's big star of the 1960s, but pretty much its only star. His final appearance at the Tour was Eddie Merckx's first, in 1969, when the Belgian took a dominating debut victory. But Altig wasn't quite ready to bow down to the new generation. In the opening 10.4km time trial around Roubaix, Altig beat Merckx by 7 seconds to take the win, denying the Belgian the chance to wear the yellow jersey the next day as the race entered his hometown of St. Peter's Wolloway. It was a performance that recalled his one-second victory over Onkatil back in the decisive time trial of his debut Vuelta in 1962. And it bookended his career marvellously. No other cyclist in history can claim to have beaten both five-time tour champions against the clock. Altig retired two years later, aged 34. 
He became a director sportive at the Puck Walber team during the 1980s, an early incarnation of the System U team, and also was the German national coach before moving into commentary with Eurosport. He died in 2016 after a battle with cancer, aged 79. A passage in Tim Crabbe's seminal novel, The Rider, recalls Altig's most famous moment. And while it involved that man Onkatil, it was not the time he denied his teammate victory in the Vuelta, nor the moment he denied the Frenchman those elusive rainbow stripes. When, at the end of his career, they asked Rudy Altig about his greatest race, he didn't mention his Road World Championship of 1966 or his victory in the Spanish Vuelta in 1962, his yellow jerseys in the Tour de France, or his numerous pursuit championships. He spoke of the Trofeo Baraki of 1962. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. Edited by Chris Watts. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze, and you can find me at Graham Wilgos. You can find Pete still recovering from his Tour de France Tokyo double. Plus, you can find Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK, or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And join us for our next episode. We roll back to the 1957 Vuelta España to get in the middle of a personal feud between Federico Bahamontes and Jesus Lerono when Bahamontes blew a 16-minute lead to hand his big rival the yellow jersey on a plate. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.